Balancing the needs of your business and your employees has never been more important. Do both with Concur Expense. Speed up your finance processes, ensure compliance, and pay your employees on time when you automate your expenses. And with a handy mobile app, your teams can work from anywhere while focusing on what matters most, the bottom line. Move your business forward with SAP Concur Solutions. Visit concur.com to learn more. Well, hello. Thank you for downloading another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. We're delighted that Robert Harris is going to be joining us very, very uh, shortly. Matthew is there with his dodgy Wi-Fi, which will be edited. I, I am. I, I feel sure we should say right at, the, right at the start, Simon, we should say that uh, we invented leaving the BBC to go and then start a podcast well before the likes of your Emily Maitlesses and your John Sopels. We were well ahead of the curve there, That's I think. True. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know... Hey, Sopel, hey, Mateless, back in your box. Mind you, they're you know, very successful, very good. News agents, very good podcast yeah, as well. But anyway, yeah. uh, we're available to come on and we can promote our podcast on, on yours. Uh, before we get to Robert, um, some correspondence into us here. You can tweet us at Books of the Year. Finally got, I can't remember what our email is, Books of the Year at Yahoo.com. That's right. Well done. Uh, Elton yeah. Barkas, thank you. Uh, finally got reading... Uh, Jonathan Friedland's book. Wow, riveting. If the book is anything like the pod, I'm not going to be able to put it down. Jonathan Friedland's final thought is a gut punch that people frequently fail to recognize or shy away from acknowledging an impending catastrophe. Uh, Justin's a fan of that. I very rarely buy physical books these days, but I made an exception after hearing Jonathan Friedland on Books of the Year. If it's as half as good as it sounds, this one will be on the bookcase. Craig Jarvis says, The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, which arrived this morning. Uh, I don't usually read nonfiction, but I was so drawn in by his recent interview on Books of the Year, I just had to find out more about Rudolf Verber, who's the uh, main character, who is, in fact, the uh, escape artist. Indeed. And Sarah Deitch says, Great choice. It's utterly gripping. I can't stop recommending it to people. And Caroline Norden. Oh, this is about, uh, this is on TikTok, on TikTok. which I believe yeah. is my latest. <laughs> yes. You're right. Yeah. Uh, this what Caroline says, a two-day read. Everything you, everything you want from a book. Suspense, drama, resolution. Even after Books of the Year, I didn't know what would happen. Boom. Thank you very much indeed. What a, Put it on the front what, cover. What a book it is. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Put it on the cover. Uh, if you want to uh, get in touch, we would love to hear, hear your thoughts uh, on any of the shows we do, uh, particularly the Robert Harris interview, which you're about to hear. Uh, books of the year at yahoo.com if you want to email and you can tweet us at books of the year now stand by it's the big guest time so what a thrill it is uh, to welcome robert harris back to the uh, the podcast robert hello uh, it's very nice to see you so you're looking very well hi simon yes i am feeling quite well had a nice summer very nice i think you've got a south of france tan on that's what i'm thinking <laughs> <laughs> actually i went to greece i went to greece for a change all right okay well very nice um, it's delightful to have you back every single time, but uh, the new thriller is fantastic. Robert Harris, Act of Oblivion. Matt will now describe it in time-honoured fashion. Yes, I will. So the, and I'm going to guess that the, certainly the, the front cover that I've got in front of me, Robert, is the one that we're going to be seeing in our bookstores because it's certainly the one that I've been seeing advertised everywhere. Oh. And that is Robert's phone. 
I'm sorry, I've turned it <laughs> off. Beg your pardon. <laughs> don't worry. This don't is worry. just typical, isn't it? We are work- you're working with amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Right. Not um, at all. <laughs> yeah, so the, so the front cover is, is very sort of, it's shouting out winter um, because of, we've got a, a very winter sky with snow on the ground and then uh, two figures on horseback. Uh, right in the bottom right-hand corner of the of the front cover, on horseback, clearly running away from something. We can see some wolves faintly in the background, and then Robert Harris in gold, an act of oblivion in black, and Robert Harris's phone is not on the front cover. <laughs> if you want to call Robert Harris, yes. <laughs> okay, I, I think even with my technical incompetence, I've now switched the bloody thing off. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, Robert Harris, act of oblivion. Um, so let's assume that the phone is off. Robert, tell us. <laughs> yeah, now, the act of oblivion. <laughs> I, I should say, a doc. when I was reading this, uh, a GP friend of mine was around the house, and because she's medical, looked at it, and she read it as ACT of oblivion. Um, <laughs> so, so therefore, she took it in a completely different manner. But anyway, the act of oblivion was a real thing. Tell us, tell us what the act of oblivion actually was. Uh, It was an act of Parliament passed in the summer of 1660 when Charles II came to the throne after England had been a republic for 11 years following the Civil War and the execution of Charles I. Uh, And the Act of Oblivion was a sort of deal between uh, the parliamentary forces and the royalists. And uh, basically it said, um, all is forgiven, Uh, there will be no retribution, for anyone who took up arms against the king, uh, all will be sweetness and light, except for anyone who had any hand in the death of Charles I. Um, that was the people that signed the death warrant, 59 of them, and the 100 or more judges who, who, who presided over the king's trial. And these, these men were required to hand themselves in and some of the idiots did so um, in the belief that they would get uh, mercy, but there was no mercy really shown. And anyone who didn't hand themselves in was ruthlessly hunted down. And that's where this phrase, the greatest manhunt of the 18th, 17th century came from. And my book basically tells the story of that manhunt. And why and how did you alight on this manhunt as a topic for your your latest work, Robert, because it's it's a fantastic story. I just wondered, and obviously it's been there for hundreds of years. What was it that made you think this is for me? Well, I saw this tweet. I think it was about the the great manhunt, and it just intrigued me. So I I followed the lead, and it was about the regicides. There've been a couple of books about it, uh, and I thought, well, this is a great story, and there is something I can do here with it, which a historian can't do, and that is that we don't know who really organised this manhunt. Who It went on for years uh, and across Europe, Holland, Germany, Switzerland. There were assassination squads, and then it spilled over into America. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll invent the man who's responsible for tracking these people down. That was the start of it. So I have invented this character called Richard Naylor, who's the clerk to the regicide committee of the Privy Council, and he he goes after these guys. And I chose in particular to focus on the two men who are on the cover um, galloping across the snowy wastes of New England. Uh, They were real figures, a Colonel 
Goff and a Colonel Wally. And um, the book is essentially their desperate attempts to try and stay one step ahead of Naylor. Tell us a bit more about the... So you, you make it very clear at the beginning that the book is a, quotes an imaginative recreation of a true story. So Richard Naylor is your only creation. Is he someone that we would recognise? Is he someone, the, the, the kind of person who turns up in every court, in every cabinet uh, since time immemorial? Yes, I, I, I make that point in the book that he is a sort of an anonymous behind-the-scenes figure implacable, remorseless, who knows how to survive in a bureaucracy. Uh, and he's, But he has a particular personal animus against um, Wally and Goff um, to do with the death of his wife. And uh, so those two, he, he's, he's, he's witnesses the execution of Charles I at the beginning of the book. And he, he goes around with a linen handkerchief spotted with the martyred king's blood, which quite a few royalists did do and so you know he's dedicated to tracking these people down and i i really made him a sort of um obsessive um law man i suppose and i think he, he's quite a modern figure in certain respects uh, although i try to keep true uh, to the 17th century and uh, there were times when i thought he'd run away with the book actually because he's so dynamic that i worried that the reader would have too much sympathy for him, actually. Um, I adored this book, Robert. I, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, um, of your work. We've had you on the, this podcast before. We've had you when we were on uh, Radio 2 before, um, and that's testament to how much we enjoy your books. But I, I don't think I've enjoyed any of your books as much as this one um, since since Fatherland. Um, it's absolutely outstanding. I took it on holiday with me to the Western Isles, which was considerably less sunny than your holiday, I'm going to guess. Um, but I, I absolutely raced through it. I want to ask about this act of oblivion. Because, of course, England isn't the only country to bring in this kind of idea of let's forget about whose side everyone was on. Uh, we're not going to have any retribution. We're all going to get on with being a country. I remember um, Spain is a country that I, I know pretty well. They had the Pacto del Olvido, which is almost an exact translation of Act of Oblivion after Franco died. And even when I visited the country a good 15, 20 years after Franco had died, you still knew who was on each side. There were still things you could and couldn't say in mixed company because you didn't know how people were going to react. And I suppose the point I'm making there is that whereas in South Africa they had the truth and reconciliation, in other words, we are going to get everything out of the open and we're going to talk about it all, as opposed to we're just going to try and forget it because it's just not effective. And I just I, I want to get your thoughts on that as to whether it was effective because obviously there were people, as you've already said, who thought, "Oh right, act of oblivion means um, I can you know come out of the shadows," and they were they were foolish to do so. I mean, it was a remarkable piece of legislation actually, um, and it did work um, because there was no more civil war. Uh, it, it's quite remarkable that there wasn't a continuation, in fact. Um, it, and I'll tell you how good it was. When Oliver Cromwell died, um, his son, Richard, took over as Lord Protector. And the Cromwell's family were enormously powerful, as you can imagine. Henry Cromwell was in charge of Ireland. Neither Richard nor Henry was moved against by the royalists. Both died of old age. Um, 
the Cromwell family were left alone. Um, you know, it was only the people who'd been involved in the execution of the king, which neither of those had been. They were the only ones they hunted down. To begin with, the uh, agreement was uh, was that they would only go after four of the uh, regicides, as they called them. But once the Restoration Parliament was elected, it was full of um, people who did want vengeance, and the number um, to be arrested grew and grew and grew um, until, in the end, it was scores um, who were picked up. I mean, a lot of the people who'd signed the death warrant were dead, Cromwell notably, of course, uh, but there were 30-ish or so who were still alive, and... Uh, uh, they were promised, uh, if they gave themselves up, uh, they they threw themselves on the king's mercy. And a lot of them were told on the quiet that all would be well. But it the, the mood got worse and worse over the summer of 1660. And they found themselves in irons being taken to the Tower of London. And then they realised too late that they'd just walked into this terrible trap. It was possible to save your neck if you... Uh, agreed to say that you had done a terrible thing, then you got life imprisonment. Unfortunately, life imprisonment really was pretty horrendous uh, because you know, nobody was let out and they lived in terrible dungeons. And some of them were even paraded on the anniversary of the king's death every year with rope around their necks at Tyburn. Uh, but mind you, that was still better than the punishment of hanging, drawing and quartering, which um, was inflicted on uh, those who refused to recant. Can I just ask you a bit about that, Robert? Because uh, I looked up some of the, some of the details here, and it was only abolished in 1870 in this country. However, um, the hanging, the drawing, and the quartering is a such an extraordinary, gruesome end for anyone, but also the regicides that you're talking about, and a bunch of the regicides get it all at the same time. And you give us just enough detail, but not too much, and I wondered whether you kind of agonised a bit over how much to include here because it is so horribly gruesome. I certainly did. Um, in fact, I almost it almost put me off writing the novel because I knew that I would have to um, describe it to some degree um, to, to give an accurate picture of what the times were like and also to show why uh, men hid for 20 years or more to avoid such a fate. And uh, I think if I described it, if we'd had a cat, if I'd invented a character and we uh, or followed one of the regicides all the way through the trial, the imprisonment, and then the execution, and we got to know him, then I think it would be, have been awful. But, but as it is, I do it in a sort of paragraph in recollection. But I had to give the details because... I think it would, you, you can't sanitise history. I mean, you don't have to sort of dwell on it in a near pornographic way, but you have to, um, you have to say what happened. I think, you, I, think, I think you owe that to the reader. Yes. Well, I was grateful for the brevity, but, you know, we, as you say, we, 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 learn all the, we learn all that we need to do. Um, and the other thing that particularly intrigued me, uh, Robert, was the, your painting and description of 17th century America. Now, I imagine that 17th century London is slightly better mapped than 17th century America. How did you approach creating the vast uh, vistas of, uh, uh, of America? Well, um, there are um, contemporary 
books um, about it. Um, there are histories of these tiny little towns. Um, they, that was a good starting point. Um, the, uh, there was something called the Old Connecticut Path, which was an Indian trail which ran from uh, Boston Bay all the way across country to the Connecticut, uh, more than 100 miles. And this was essentially wasn't even wide enough to take a wagon. It was either on single file on horseback or on foot quite often, and you walk that way. And there was a wonderful book published in um, 1940 called The Old Connecticut Path, and that was very useful for me because it described various people who'd made this journey in the 17th century and how you survived it. Um, and my uh, colonels had to leave, flee, uh, the Boston area because um, the warrant for their arrest had arrived and they had to trek in February all this way. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was quite some feat, especially, I should say that this were these were father-in-law and son-in-law. Uh, Edward Wally was 60 and his son-in-law was 40. Uh, and Wally was uh, Cromwell's cousin. Uh, so for a man of that age to walk that far was was quite something. But this is what I like doing, uh, is trying to imagine, recreate the past. Um, it seems to me the um, argument for historical fiction is that you can actually lift the reader out of the modern world and take them there and invent scenes and and encounters uh, so that I wanted the reader to feel viscerally what it would be like to pitch up in New England and to have to do this great walk. And so, whilst Robert, whilst we're in America and the and the events happening there, I want to ask you about uh, one of the the events that happened. That um, I, I I'd like to know whether it was based on reality at all. One of the regicides, William Goff, when he's lying low in a village, notices that the village is about to be attacked by Native Americans, and he rallies the the, the villagers uh, to to defend themselves. In fact, basically coordinates the defence, um, and but has now blown his cover um, because he, he needs to get out because everyone wants to know who he is suddenly. Did, is, is that based on, on, on real events? Yes, it is. In fact, it was, it, it was known as the, the legend of the Angel of Hadley. Uh, and it was in the uh, Indian War of 1674-75, uh, uh, this remote town of Hadley, only about 50 or 60 houses, was attacked and uh, almost certainly, we know that this was where Wally and Goff hid. And um, it, Goff, it seems, was hiding in in, in the house of the uh, of the um, preacher, uh, and he would have had he would have seen uh, the Indian attack coming. And it seems almost certain that he um, finally um, revealed himself. Nobody knew he was there except the Russell family, the people who were looking after him, and. Uh, he strapped on his sword and took up his pistol, and this ancient figure suddenly appeared in the in the church in the centre of the town, and he organised a defence. Bear in mind that uh, the new model army was the greatest army in the world, and Wally and Goff were highly trained. Um, they knew how to fight, and uh, he saved the town, but he'd revealed himself, and so he had to go on the run again. And this myth... Uh, became quite fam famous in the years that followed, and uh, you know by this point we're more than fifty. We're fifteen years into this chase, and uh, I have my uh, fictional regicide hunter in retirement, reading the, uh, the legend of Hadley, 
and he suddenly realizes this guy is still alive. That must be him. Uh, and it was it, right from the beginning, I thought that that would give me the climax of the novel. I'm going to give a slight value judgment here, Robert, but I do want to put this point to you. What a tiresome bunch the Puritans were. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I started off always thinking, you know, in the Civil War, I'd be a parliamentarian and uh, I suppose I would have been wishy-washy centrists, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the shock troops of the army... Uh, the Ironsides, uh, these were maniacs, actually. Uh, and they, um, you know, they they were became deeply unpopular because of their repressive measures, cancelling Christmas fam famously. In fact, Wally and Goff are in the diaries of J John Evelyn. They are recorded breaking up a Christmas uh, service uh, and they, you know, close the theatres and so on. And they are a miserable crowd. Uh, and I, you know, what, what is extraordinary to me, and I hadn't realised this before I started writing the book, is the extent to which they dominated New England and therefore are in the DNA of modern America. Uh, and if still now, if you go to parts of New England, I remember doing it when I was writing The Ghost, you can go to towns that are dry, that, you know, there's no alcohol is permitted for sale. Uh, and I think a lot of visitors to America from Europe are... are taken aback by the extent of the religious broadcasting and the uh, the way that uh, God is woven into politics there. And I think this can all be traced back to, uh, you know, the fact that it was the, it was a Puritan community, very largely. When I, I was deep in your book, uh, Robert, and a friend of mine, uh, who's a priest, invited me to go, because we were on holiday and near him, and he said, do you want to come to see, uh, we've got a choral even song tonight, and the choir are particularly good. So I thought, okay, I'll go along. And the choir were particularly good. And uh, and in between the singing, it was 1662 prayer book. And for the life of me, that it, it was like stepping out of your book in, into more of your book because the way, of course, this is exactly the right period of the 17th century where ev everyone in the prayer book seems to be speaking like your characters. Uh, did, did you look at the prayer book or did the King James Bible? I don't know because it just seems to be a key to not just the way they were thinking, but the way they actually spoke and how their conversations would have gone. Yes, I did. I mean, this is the third novel that has got a lot of the Bible in it, and um, I'm getting rather familiar with it. Uh, I, uh, you know, the religion is is vital. You have to have the, the, it's the motivating factor. It's the reasons that these regicides, when they died, almost without exception, faced being hanged, drawn and quartered with something like a smile on their face. At any rate, they were incredibly brave. Uh, they didn't collapse in the face of what was to come. So religion is absolutely at the heart of the book. What I didn't want to do was to have that sort of cod dialogue, um, you know, a mock 17th century these and thous and yees, I took as my model, frankly, Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. You know, you have an authentic feel of Tudor England, but they they talk something which is recognisably modern English. And uh, so I tried to do that. But I read the King James Bible and I read a lot of letters and speeches from the time just so that I could get the flavour of the way that they spoke. I mean, the classic phrase from the Bible, if you want to think of how they spoke, is um, in the Bible where they say, uh, they know not what they do. Um, that is a classic st sentence structure of modern French, but of English 
at that time. No isers. We would say they don't know what they're doing. They would never have said anything like that. I wonder, Robert, you've already mentioned that uh, when you were researching one of your earlier books, The Ghost, that you'd been in New England and you'd seen um, uh, towns where they were dry and things like that. I wonder how much modern America, as in in the last few months uh, and, well, last year or so, was in your mind when you were when you were writing this book. Just bearing in mind, you know, we have villages where you'll have the sort of village elder who says, my word is law, and uh, basically takes, takes every law from the Bible, uh, very much a bit of a, a theocracy. And you even have Ned um, observing at one point that even Cromwell wouldn't have gone this far. And, and yet, in modern America, we're seeing laws being passed, um, certain rights being withheld based on what's in the Bible or what was written or not written in a constitution from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. W- was that in your mind at all, or, or is that just something that was on my mind while I, while I was reading your book? No, it's definitely on my mind. Um, I mean, I, one thing I've learned over the years is you mustn't just use history as a kind of convenient peg or coat hanger on which to drape the modern world. It's false and the books don't work and the books will date as quickly as a novel set in contemporary times. But if you just allow the characters and the, the laws and the customs of the time, you just write them straight, then that's when you find the the relevance to the modern world. And uh, there were you know, Massachusetts and, and Connecticut, they were Puritan, uh, largely, but they weren't uh, crazy like New Haven. New Haven was a sort of breakaway sect of extreme Puritans who, as you say, followed the law of Moses. So, for instance, it's part of the plot, um, and true, that uh, you know, at sundown on a Saturday, the Sabbath began, and it went all the way through to dawn on the Monday, and you weren't allowed to move more than two miles from your house or cook a meal um, you know, and, and this was very strictly enforced with floggings and for anyone who uh, disobeyed. And this was the this was the town, New Haven, that really shielded the regicides because they didn't accept the authority of the newly restored king. Uh, with the result that there is no state of New Haven today. There is in the, there are states of Massachusetts and Connecticut, obviously, but New Haven was um, abolished by the king. They were so furious with them. But all the beginnings of an independent America are there in 1661. Um, you, the dislike of the king, um, the kind of independent thought uh, they have their own militia in each town for their defence, and the and Wally and Goff drilled the New Haven militia, and are on record as saying if they had but two two hundred of the similar men, they need fear nothing either in America or from England. So you've already got the beginnings of a kind of rebellion that would flower a century later. Uh, so yes. I, you can see all the religious um, origins of America here, and you do get this sense um, that uh, it, it informs the Constitution. Uh, Roe v. Wade, I mean, there are very, very few c- countries that are rolling back their r- laws on abortion. Uh, Ireland, for instance, a deeply religious country, has legalised it, uh, but America is making it more and more difficult. And that you tra- I really do trace that back to this world that I describe in embryo in the 17th century. 
It took me back to uh, university, Robert. I remember reading Christopher Hill's "The World Turned Upside Down," and it's e- and this. So I, it was kind of thrilling again to remember what a convulsion this civil war was. And we really don't know much about our civil war. And in, uh, if you compare it with America, slightly unfair comparison because theirs was two hundred years later. But we really don't know very much, do we, in general, about what happened in our incredible civil war. No, it's it's odd. I mean, it's not an either or, but it is odd that we focus so much on the Tudors. In, important period though that was, with the beginning, with the breakaway from Roman Catholicism and uh, and the foundation of, really of the of a modern state. But we don't then go to the second and in a way more important phase of the revolution, which is when they actually took arms against the king because they wanted to get rid of bishops, they wanted to get rid of all the paraphernalia that they felt lingered on from popery and Catholicism. Uh, We don't really think about it, but it is astonishing that England cut off the head of the king and was for 11 years a republic. one hundred and fifty years before the French, and uh, two hundred and fifty years before the Russians, we got rid of our would-be absolute monarch, and this convulsion shaped modern Britain, uh, created it really, because we be- we had this huge army, we had a powerful navy, we became a world power. Um, we also had a constitutional settlement. Now, you know, forty years after the Civil War, that is to a large degree the foundation of our modern. State and it, and this enabled a great flowering of uh, thought, intellectual thought, uh, science, uh, trade, and so on. And this is where the British Empire and the British power begins. Uh, and these are huge issues were fought over democracy. Could you have one man, one vote? As Christopher Hill, you know, famously analysed the levellers, the diggers, the the all these movements that sprang out of the army. Um, and which, uh, you know, inform the modern world. So the problem, I think, for the reason why it's not so much in popular fiction is it's incredibly complicated. I mean, it's not just Parliament versus the King, it's Parliament versus the Army versus the King. And, um, you know, it's, and it goes on a very long time, and it's hard to pick out goodies and baddies all the time. And I felt when I came across this story of the chase for these regicides that it gave me an opportunity to have a thrilling structure for a novel. A chase is always interesting. And the opportunity through flashback to try and bring the Civil War alive without having to tell the whole thing. Uh, And I set out to try and do that because I think it it is time we looked at this a bit more, especially with the Queen's long reign drawing to a close and the issue of uh, our constitutional settlement with a monarch is probably going to be examined again. Do you think Roundheads and Cavaliers is still useful in terms of, you know, if you look at politicians and their instincts? I don't know, sometimes it still seems to work for me. I think there is an element of it, yes. It's not, um, uh, I mean, you can't really sort of apply it to too great an extent. But I think if you take um, the stirrings, uh, uh, beginning with Henry VIII, of British independence from foreign control and the constant uh, refrain of popery and, uh, you know, the foreigners are trying to run us, uh, we must have a sovereign parliament, um, a suspicion of foreigners, uh, versus this kind of 
instinct versus the rather languid, worldly, uh, more cosmopolitan cavaliers, uh, you do see the ghost of the whole Brexit uh, you know, battle in these two sides. It's not an absolutely you know, firmly applied um, you know, model, but I did feel as I was writing the book that you know, I could see where, where we come from. In which case, permit me a flabby question, Robert. Um, <laughs> the two referenda that we've had in this country, one over Scottish independence and EU membership, I mean, the two recent uh, referenda, injected, it seems to me, a poison into our political debate, fanned by social media, I know, but from which political discourse hasn't really recovered. And I wondered whether, I mean, obviously, a, a civil war is uniquely divisive, but those two events have, appear to be uniquely divisive in our lifetime. And I don't know, political discourse hasn't really caught up yet. I think you're right. Um, I think it's the most, the, the, the 2016 referendum was the most uh, dispiriting thing that's happened uh, in my lifetime politically. Uh, and putting aside the fact that my side lost, um, I think that it split uh, families and friends uh, and communities. Uh, and it goes on. It doesn't. It's not like a game of football. You blow the whistle and everyone leaves the pitch. Um, politics is a remorseless process that never stops. Uh, so the idea that there's going to be a definitive line and then nothing will ever change after that is is phooey. And uh, this was this is why referendums are a thoroughly bad idea because they'd leave very nearly half the country feeling still disgruntled and uh, cheated and the other half uh, feeling aggrieved that um, the will of the people is not being accepted but you know human beings aren't like that so we have had a taste mercifully non-violent pretty well of of the emotions aroused by uh, a civil war and it's very very unpleasant and it's quite hard to ever put it to bed. Uh, one final point for me, Robert, just about active oblivion. That you, Matt has mentioned the uh, Indigenous Americans uh, appearing towards the later stages of the book. Can you make one reference? You, I think you mentioned the Reverend John Russell's American household. I think originally he came from Ipswich, I think you tell us. Um, and in his household, you say he had two slaves uh, bought at auction at, at Rhode Island. And it was just a very interesting reminder, though, even though we're talking about the end of the 17th century and that huge industrial nature of what happened to slavery in America came a bit later. But right at the heart of the beginning of modern America, there, was, there were enslaved people. Yes. Curiously, a lot of the slave labour initially was provided by um, prisoners of war captured by the parliamentary side. A lot of Scotsmen were shipped uh, and sold um, to mill owners, uh, mine, uh, they dug in the mines, they worked in the sawmills. They, they did eventually uh, get their freedom after about a decade, but for a decade they worked as slave labourers effectively. Uh, in addition to that, I was surprised to discover that um, Russell, when he died, had two slaves as chattels um, and... Uh, the truth is that what they were desperately short of in America was manpower. Um, they, they, you know, you had to build everything. You had to get all the crops. You had to, um, you know, 
make the farms work. You, there simply weren't enough people to do it. So slave labour, be it prisoners of war or uh, black people uh, shipped from the Caribbean, um, that was what they did. And again, they found biblical justification for it. Uh, uh, yanking uh, justifications out of the Bible, which were to be used again and again in America over the centuries that followed, to justify uh, holding people captive and removing their liberty. Yes, it's another thing to do with uh, a modern America and uh, the race uh, divisions that you still have there that, that started in this period. It didn't really happen in England because there was no shortage of manpower. If there had been, um, perhaps we would have had um, a similar uh, slave population. But the truth was there were enough uh, people in Europe, um, not just in England, but in on the continent, to um, make the economy work. And there was it was economically not viable, really, to, to have a slave population. My guess is, Robert, is the thing that attracts your attention for your next book won't involve the Bible, the Book of Common Prayer... <laughs> Uh, Puritans, <laughs> you probably had enough of all. Yes, I mean, I, you know, I. It was, um, it was a tough book to write. I mean, to to write, I, I kept thinking, what, why do I do this to myself? To write a popular novel about two Puritan colonels on the run across a modern uh, across America in the seventeenth century. Am I mad? You know, um, but I'm very glad I did it because I think that um, it's unexplored territory and that is always great to come across if you're a writer. Um, but I, I'm going to, yes, avoid the Bible in the next uh, couple of novels if I possibly can. <laughs> uh, Robert Harris, it's always a, a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for your time. The, Robert's new book, uh, in fact, the cop I've got a copy, so the book isn't out yet, but the book does say on the cover, number the number one bestseller, which is an act of <laughs> confidence. No, well, that means me. I, I know, when they say number one bestseller, that's me, because oh, occasionally I've one. had number one bestsellers, and, and I would just say the book was published on the 1st of September. You've, okay. just, got a, you've just got a very luxurious free gift. An advanced copy. Well, Robert Harris fans are going to love it. Everyone is going to love it. It is a terrific book, Robert Harris, Act of Oblivion. Robert, the number one bestseller. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.